Welcome to Story and Star Wars. I'm Alistair Stevens. After our brief post-original trilogy interregnum, we turn our attention finally to the prequel trilogy, beginning with The Phantom Menace from 1999. If you are joining us for the first time, if this is your first Story and Star Wars lecture, I should tell you that the second half of this seminar series is going to build on the foundational work we did in the first half, so while I respect your right to watch these movies and listen to these lectures in any order you see fit, you'd probably be better served by going back to the beginning and listening in that order. Let's not be coy about this. The Phantom Menace was a controversial movie when it was released, and in the intervening years, though a few brave and valiant voices have been raised in its defense, its reputation, I think, has diminished still further. It's arguable, certainly I would argue, that no film could have lived up to the hype and the excitement that awaited its release, and I think that there's an interesting pop-cultural perspective to take on that phenomenon. But from the perspective of narrative, the critical response to The Phantom Menace is, and always has been, much more complicated. This is an interesting and subtle and complex story that trades on its sense of its own mythology, a fair measure of the intertextuality I remarked upon during the live session with regard to the trailer for The Force Awakens. There's some fascinating world-building, some provocative and deceptively complicated thematic work, and that strong foundation is completely compromised by the movie's two biggest problems, Jar Jar Binks and Anakin Skywalker. We'll get to them in due course. But first, the background. The Phantom Menace was released in 1999. It was written and directed by Lucas for the first time since A New Hope. It cost $115 million and took box office returns of more than a billion, becoming the second highest grossing movie ever after Titanic. And even now, 16 years later, it is still sixth on that list. The critical response at the time, as I said, was mixed, but was generally fairly positive, far more positive than we might remember. In fact, the popular response was much less enthusiastic, and if you were on the internet, as I was back in 1999, then you'll probably remember how trenchant the opposition and criticism from certain parts of the fan community became. That led to The Phantom Menace, and ultimately to the prequel trilogy as a whole, being regarded as nothing but punchlines for a full decade. Only recently, I think, have we begun a new wave of critical response. Partly that's based in the separation of time and distance from the hype and from our immediate emotional response. And yes, partly it's because nothing drives traffic on the internet, like taking a provocative and contrary view. But there certainly are now more interesting and thoughtful pieces to be read about The Phantom Menace than ever before. The Phantom Menace is often criticized primarily for the mechanics of its plot, preoccupied as they seem to be with matters of taxation and trade blockades and the abstractions of economics and political power. Roger Ebert, who interestingly gave the film three and a half out of four stars, said in his review, quote, the plot details of embargoes and blockades tend to diminish the size of the movie's universe, to shrink it to the scale of a 19th century trade dispute. This series is essentially human mythology set in space, but not occupying it. And I pulled this quote not to pick out Roger Ebert, but rather because I needed a quote representative of this common perspective, and Ebert's quotes are always the best written, always the best argued. Why wouldn't you use his quote? 
I would argue, though, that Ebert, that this perspective, this response to The Phantom Menace, misses the point, and it misses it twice over. He is right that Star Wars has always been mythology, it's always been heroic fantasy. But as I discussed at length in my previous lectures, it was never about the simple, uncomplicated opposition of good and evil. That, too, is a common criticism that misses the point. While the film's efforts to communicate the importance of the trade blockade are perhaps less than successful, it is vital to our understanding of the world. The trade blockade leads us to the inevitable conclusion that this is not the Empire, but this is what comes before. This is reflected in other parts of the movie, too, which we'll get to in just a moment. But to frame the central plot, for those of you who may have nodded off, or for those of you who didn't go back and watch The Phantom Menace before listening to this lecture, here it is. The tax issues mentioned in the opening crawl are the excuse that the evil Trade Federation needs to blockade the planet Naboo, a blockade which is itself a precursor to an open invasion. Queen Amidala must go to the Senate to oppose that invasion, lest she be forced to sign a peace treaty, in quotes, which will, when ratified by the Senate, legalize the Trade Federation's occupation of Naboo. The Trade Federation was manipulated to attack in the first place by Darth Sidious, aka Senator Palpatine, as part of a scheme to become Supreme Chancellor. That is the core narrative conflict of The Phantom Menace. We need to consider two other moments in the movie, though, before we can really see where this is pointing us. We need to look to Watto's refusal to accept Republic credits on Tatooine, and the whole question of slaves and slavery. Qui-Gon frees Anakin by gambling for possession of a slave, which is morally dubious, yes, but a perfectly legal thing to do. Padme is appalled that owning slaves is legal, but no one takes the necessary steps to free Shmi, Anakin's mother, or any of the other slaves being held on Tatooine. This is the way that things are. It may not be right, but it is legal. When we think of Watto's refusal to accept Republic credits, we have to wonder at the power of the Republic. It's clearly supposed to be the dominant political and economic force in the galaxy, but their money's no good on Tatooine? Can this possibly be true? To be clear, I understand that the issue with Qui-Gon's money is designed to motivate the pod race, and that's fine. It works nicely in that regard, but it would have been the matter of moments to rewrite the script so that Qui-Gon simply doesn't have any money, rather than having an excess of Republic credits which are not acceptable. Instead, we go out of our way to show that the Republic isn't impressing anyone out here on the Outer Rim. So when we take those three points together, Qui-Gon's money, slavery on Tatooine, and the assault on Naboo by the Trade Federation, taken together, we're looking at a society wherein right and wrong have been eclipsed by legalism and bureaucracy. Even the Jedi Council, who act, as we're told in the opening crawl, at the command of the Supreme Chancellor of the Republic Senate, is concerned primarily with how things are done. They are confident and complacent in their superiority. They don't believe Qui-Gon that Darth Maul is Sith, because, as everyone knows, the Sith have been extinct for a millennia. After testing their reluctance to accept him as a Padawan learner, finally, Yoda has a problem with Obi-Wan specifically taking Anakin as a student, and calls Obi-Wan out for exhibiting Qui-Gon's defiance, a quality of independent thought that's apparently unpopular among the Jedi. 
All of which is to say that the 19th century trade dispute to which Roger Ebert referred in his review isn't just deliberate. It's one of the most interesting and subtle parts of the world building that we get in The Phantom Menace. This is a society that has fallen to politics and bureaucracy that lacks the individual motivation and agency that strives for good. And that isn't just attention buried in the backstory. It's a fundamental part of the main plot of the movie, because it's inverted in the actions of Queen Amidala. It is no coincidence that the palaces and the plazas of Naboo resemble Renaissance Italy and the great and dissolute empires thereof. It's no coincidence that the Gungan people are misunderstood and disenfranchised on their shared planet. Amidala inverts the bureaucratic impulse to preserve the status quo by unifying the two races of Naboo and thus winning the war. She isn't bound by tradition. She crosses all the lines. This is a quality we see echo through her entire storyline from disguising herself as a handmaiden in the first place to taking part in the raid on the palace. Thanks to her, her singular heroism, her vision, her willingness to look beyond legalism and bureaucracy, the culture on Naboo is still mutable and still vibrant. There is, put simply, still hope. And that's a hope that is absent from Coruscant, from the seat of the Republic. The abstractions of trade disputes and votes of no confidence are designed, I would argue, to present the Republic as a cold and an unfeeling entity that will inevitably slip toward cruelty and authoritarianism. This is as much a part of what will come as grim forebodings about Anakin's destiny. We'll keep track of this theme, and we'll certainly keep track too of the idea of individual exceptionalism and the opposition between individualism and society. We'll keep track of that as we move through the prequel trilogy, and we'll put a pin too in the other element of the Naboo Gungan storyline, which is of course the harmonious desire to live in concert with one's environment. As previously mentioned, more on that later in today's lecture. Before we get to that though, we have to look at the way the film treats the most prominent heroes that we have. The Jedi. I understand that movie making changed a great deal between A New Hope or even between Return of the Jedi and The Phantom Menace, but we have to acknowledge that there's a measure of adjustment necessary when it comes to the depiction of Jedi Knights, or I guess more accurately, the depiction of Jedi Knights in The Phantom Menace more closely matches our pop-cultural sense of these lightsaber-wielding heroes than it does the textual evidence of the original trilogy. While the lightsaber duels in the prequel trilogy are compelling, and arguably the Darth Maul duel is the best in the entire series, it can be a little tough to reconcile this combat style, this raw physicality, with Obi-Wan's reference to lightsabers being a more elegant weapon for a more civilized age. That certainly seems to echo the Kendo-influenced lightsaber duels of the original trilogy, but it has little to do with the athleticism of the prequel trilogy. This is more an observation, I guess, than a criticism, but it is part of a swing away from the restrained approach to the Jedi that we saw in the original trilogy to a more amped-up, superheroic version in the prequels. That's true, too, of the Jedi's other abilities. Their telekinetic force push is used more freely and is clearly more powerful than any similar application in the original trilogy. They're also able to sense all kinds of things, to be connected to the world around them in a more profound way. 
The problem here isn't really in the specifics, most of which can be whistled past or can be understood as a part of modern movie making. The problem, rather, is the overall sense of inflation that undercuts the dramatic impact of The Phantom Menace. When Luke tries to use the mind trick on Jabba the Hutt and it doesn't work, it is serious business. Jabba is even more powerful and dangerous than we thought. When Qui-Gon runs into the same problem with Watto, though, it's just another beat in the plot to get us where we're going. It's convenient. It's not structural. We're impressed with Luke doing a handstand in the swamps of Dagobah, but Obi-Wan can do a standing leap dozens of feet in the air, hundreds perhaps. Destroying the Death Star is a huge deal, but a nine-year-old in a Naboo starfighter can accidentally take down a Trade Federation droid control ship on his own. There is, in The Phantom Menace, an excess of excess. If Anakin is already a better pilot in the race sequence than literally every other pilot that we'll see in Star Wars, then how are we to understand the scale of the conflict? How are we supposed to be worried about him? I'm not worried about him at any point because he's indestructible. There's no sense of threat. There's no sense of jeopardy because there is in the film's production too little restraint. And nowhere is that more evident than in the depiction of the Jedi themselves. For the purposes of this lecture, I watched the duel between Vader and Obi-Wan in A New Hope, then the duel between Luke and Vader in Return of the Jedi, and then, of course, the duel of the fates, three-way duel at the end of The Phantom Menace, and they feel fundamentally different in concept, in purpose, not just in production. This is one of the reasons why, by the way, you need to watch the movies in release order after watching the prequels. Nothing in the original trilogy feels spectacular, or not as spectacular as it's intended to. Even if we're willing to give ground on much of that inflation and that excess, and to chalk it up as a product of the modern movie-making process, much of which was defined by the success of the original Star Wars trilogy itself, there are still some shifts in focus and in emphasis within The Phantom Menace that have nothing to do with spectacle, some which are very hard to explain indeed. There is, for example, a hard swing in The Phantom Menace toward mysticism and, specifically, religion. The original trilogy is mythic, and when it addresses great metaphysical forces like destiny, as we discussed in the live session, it does so with a great deal of ambiguity. In The Phantom Menace, though, we have to contend with the Jedi prophecy, we have to contend with the invocation of Gungan gods, and we have to contend, most problematically, with the immaculate conception of Anakin Skywalker. Let's start with the Gungan pantheon, since that is perhaps the easiest to break down. The only functional reference we had to theism in the original trilogy came in Jedi when the Ewoks worshipped 3PO, mistaking him as some kind of Ewok god. Though, without a more developed understanding of Ewok theology, we can't really say for sure what that means, or the greater implications of their belief. We don't know directly, with proper context, how to translate the word God there. In the context of the story, though, their belief is broadly played as a joke. These simple tribal folk don't even know what a droid is, and Luke, notably, doesn't hesitate to leverage their belief through the application of the Force in order to get what he wants. In The Phantom Menace, Jar Jar owes Qui-Gon Jinn a life debt 
because the gods demand it. Qui-Gon refers to that element of the life debt again when addressing Boss Nass a little later. It isn't played as a joke, and it certainly isn't a necessary part of Jar Jar's storyline. It's just there. It's tempting to see it as a direct echo of the Ewok tribal theology. Hey, these creatures are so simple that they still believe in gods. But in its specific reference, the script doesn't lead us to laugh at this idea. It doesn't frame the idea in the same way. If anything, it seems to be respectful of the Gungan belief system. The Jedi, meanwhile, are also shown to be a little more mystically minded than they previously were. We've seen that the Force gives glimpses of the future, though they are notoriously imprecise. Here, though, there's a cryptically worded ancient prophecy that appears to foretell the coming of Anakin Skywalker, and it's enough to make Mace Windu and Yoda at least nervous. Finally, we have the Immaculate Conception. Anakin doesn't have a father, and Qui-Gon believes he says it in front of people that the midichlorians may have created him. These things are united in that they nod toward a new mysticism, but they don't earn their place in the story. Why do the Gungans have gods when we, the Star Wars audience, already knows what a life debt is? Why is there a prophecy about Anakin when he already has the highest midichlorian count ever? Why is he immaculately conceived in a story that has been, up to this point, extremely interested in fathers and sons, in masters and in apprentices? What is served by the addition of any of these points? What extra narrative force do they apply? The answer, to me, is none. They don't mean anything, except that they make everything sound and seem more important. Anakin can't just be strong in the Force. He has to be the strongest, and the prophesied child, and born of a virgin mother. Although, I guess, Shmi says that he doesn't have a father, not that she's a virgin, so maybe I'm making assumptions there. These things point toward a deeper theme. They point toward a greater significance. They invite you to infer all kinds of things. But that's all that they do. There's no substance there. In storytelling, information has weight. Detail has mass. If you're telling your audience something, it has to be valuable enough that it justifies the extra weight. Are you giving your audience a brick, a heavyweight, without much significance, or are you giving them a diamond, little weight, but great value? The John the Baptist analogy for Qui-Gon Jinn, for example, works just as well without echoing the Immaculate Conception. Nothing in this story is improved by these additions, and they're too significant, they're too heavy to be used without thought and without purpose. Which leads us, naturally, to midichlorians. In Empire, Yoda says this, For my ally is the Force, and a powerful ally it is. Life creates it and makes it grow. Its energy surrounds us and binds us. Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. It turns out, in the light of the Phantom Menace, that perhaps what Yoda should have said is that colonies of Force-sensitive microbes are we. Midichlorians have often been used as an example of the series swing away from confident mythic storytelling toward a more explanatory, reactionary kind of storytelling, and that is certainly evident in other parts of The Phantom Menace. There is no need for C-3PO to be in this movie at all except as a nod to fans and a piece of, of 
expository backstory. And I think that a similar accusation can certainly stick when it comes to midichlorians. I think that there is something there. But to dismiss them so readily is to run the risk, I think, of misunderstanding the intent. Ultimately, I don't think that the intent is well manifested. I don't think it is well expressed on screen, but the intent is clearly there and clearly textual. That intent being, of course, the idea that we as sentient beings are connected to the Force through these midichlorians, through these microbial sparks of life. That idea speaks powerfully to the notion of coexistence and harmony that we discussed previously, that notion that was so important to the original trilogy of Star Wars. It's echoed, too, in the text of the film by the coexistence of the Naboo and Gungan peoples. Queen Amidala's great triumph at the end of the film is uniting these two peoples, humbling herself so that they can live in harmony and coexist and, of course, fight together. So, midichlorians may, on the one hand, on the science fiction end of the spectrum, seem to offer a rational answer to the riddles of Cartesian dualism. How are the physical and spiritual sides of the being I identify as myself really connected? But really, they just kick the can further down the road. By identifying midichlorians as a form of microbial life, we're forced to ask, well, how are they connected to the Force? And what is this presence, this Force that lies beyond them? We're not actually answering anything, it seems that we're just reframing it. I completely understand the common objection to midichlorians that they rob the force of its mystical aspect, of its spiritual aspect, and I can certainly understand that grounding the force in a viral infection isn't to everyone's taste, but I also think it's a missed opportunity that, having gone to all of this trouble, the midichlorians don't actually give us any new perspective on what the force is. Our sense of the Force, whether it's through midichlorians, through prophecy, through Qui-Gon's references to the living Force, cryptic as they are, isn't strengthened or clarified by any of this. We don't get a new perspective. We just get confusion. All this talk of dualism leads us to one of the other major themes of the movie, and a theme which may be deceptive. We explore, through the span of The Phantom Menace, duality. We have the duality between Palpatine on the one hand and Sidious on the other, between Padme, for example, and Queen Amidala, two characters, both of whom wear different guises. We have a duality between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, between Sidious and Darth Maul. We have, I guess even you could include the duality, the inherent and integral duality of Darth Maul's double-sided lightsaber. We have the aforementioned duality between the Naboo and the Gungan peoples, and arguably the looming duality that we'll explore through the entire series, the looming presence that, that overshadows everything that we're seeing in The Phantom Menace, which is the duality between Anakin and Vader. But what we see in each of those examples, I think, is that duality is destructive, that duality leads to evil. None of those paired sets at least in their opposed dualistic forms, represents strength. Palpatine and Sidious are not more powerful separate. They will be most powerful when they are finally unified into the person of the Emperor. Padme and Queen Amidala become powerful when she sets aside the dualism and takes up her role, is genuinely herself. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan don't find strength from their opposed dualism. They find it from unity and concert. 
the same can presumably be said of Sidious and Maul, though I guess we don't get that in this movie. And certainly, as we explored earlier, the unification of the Naboo and Gungan peoples is arguably the turning point for the forces of good in the back half of the movie. We're urged, too, to look at one of the root causes of dualism and the single emotion that has, in the course of The Phantom Menace, been reframed, been emphasized as the gateway to the dark side. In the original trilogy, Yoda told us that the dark side was anger, fear, and hate. Now he gives us a more developed version of that. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. To what extent, then, are our dualistic pairs rooted in fear? To what extent, then, are our dualistic pairs rooted in fear? To what extent, we might ask, we are prompted to ask, is all evil rooted in fear? Palpatine and Sidious, and Padme and Queen Amidala, have a practical, cautious kind of fear, I suppose, arguably too, fear of the unknown, maybe keeping the Naboo and Gungan peoples separate, fear of the Jedi prophecy, maybe leading the Jedi Council to unwise caution, fear, it may be argued, has led the Republic culture to make this retreat into corrupt legalism that I discussed earlier. This is an empire declining, and oftentimes that decline can be rooted in fear. There's too little, I think, in this one movie to make a definitive statement about this, but we are clearly prompted to look in this direction, so we will be keeping track of this as we move forward into the other films. Before we get to our breakdown of the structure of The Phantom Menace, and before we ask the most important question that we have left to ask, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about those two giant problems with the movie that I mentioned earlier, Jar Jar Binks and Anakin Skywalker. I'm going to begin by taking the controversial position that Jake Lloyd, the young actor portraying Anakin, is actually pretty okay. He isn't given great material, and George Lucas is famously not a good director of people. He doesn't give good direction to his actors. Look at what Natalie Portman, for example, a widely praised actor, does in this movie. Not every one of Anakin's lines is good on paper. Not every one of those lines is good in practice. But overall, I think Jake Lloyd did a fine job with what he was given. The problem with Anakin, from a narrative point of view is that he only exists in the story as a placeholder for the person he will someday be. This is not the story of a nine-year-old slave boy from Tatooine. There is nothing in the structure, in the plotting, or in the conflict that suggests that it is. Anakin is only present in this story because of who he will someday become. And to justify his presence in the movie, the script makes an elementary mistake, a common mistake, and simply makes him awesome. He's a better pilot than trained adults. He's got more midichlorians than the whole Jedi Council put together. He built C-3PO, he destroys starships by accident, he's sweet and he's good and he's innocent and he's perfect, and there's nothing there. There's no substance, there's no texture, there's no expressed, accessible vulnerability. His presence is exaggerated for metatextual reasons, and that is never good. The thought experiment... I guess, that I would urge you to undertake, is to imagine a version of this story where Anakin has as much presence in the story as, say, Captain Panaka, the leader of Queen Amidala's royal guard. All the other lines of plot and conflict in the movie would still work, but Anakin doesn't need to be forcibly injected into a story that doesn't have place for him. 
His presence here, I really think, speaks to a fundamental insecurity about the story that is being told. Jar Jar Binks, on the other hand, suffers, I think, from exactly the opposite problem. His presence in the film, structurally speaking, is, is, is okay. He acts as a guide in the first act, he's a companion in the second, he's an interesting perspective when we're on Tatooine, or could be, at least, and he's a unifying presence in the third act, which speaks directly to the theme of the movie as a whole. He has a reason for being here. He has a purpose in this plot. Unfortunately, everything about his depiction is frustrating, is awkward, and is painful. He's given no capability, no dignity, no strength, no authority. When clumsy is literally your defining characteristic, someone, somewhere, has made a mistake. The thought experiment here, I suppose, would be to remove Jar Jar from this movie and to replace him with, say, a character like Yoda from The Empire Strikes Back. A character who is comedic, but is simultaneously possessed of great dignity, great competence, and great purpose. There's really nothing left to say on the topic of Jar Jar and Anakin, except that between them, they exemplify the movie's worst excesses in two different ways, but they both fundamentally speak to an authorial insistence that is not moderated through the span of this film. This movie is simply too much Lucas. Those of you who watched the original trilogy wrap-up discussion will doubtless remember the extensive discussion we had on the topic of the hero's journey and the ways in which the hero's journey maps to Joseph Campbell's monomythic form. In short, A New Hope starts out like the hero's journey and shares some beats at the end of the story, and that's pretty much it. The other movies deviate from monomythic structure on an even more fundamental level, but here's what's interesting. The Phantom Menace is the best, by which I mean the most fully realized, hero's journey that we've seen thus far. The first act is everything on the blockade ship and then on Naboo, up until we flee the planet at the half-hour mark. We then have all the events of Tatooine, we switch to Coruscant, then, uniquely in Star Wars thus far, we fulfill the hero's journey structure by returning to the mundane realm to solve the existing problem by the application of strength and power that was won in the supernatural realm. That monomythic cycle is fascinating and is fundamental to our understanding of the hero's journey form, which is what makes it so surprising that here we're encountering it for the first time. We return in the original trilogy, I guess, to Tatooine at the beginning of Jedi and to Dagobah in the middle of Jedi, but that's not the same structure. Those aren't complete narrative or monomythic cycles. But here, not only do we return to Naboo, do we return to the mundane realm and apply our hard-won rewards in the pursuit of justice, but we also are forced to recontextualize Tatooine as the supernatural realm. Tatooine and Coruscant together, providing the second act, this elongated second act of this movie, work as that which is other. They work as that which is not Naboo. And that's fascinating because, of course, Tatooine is known to us as being the most mundane of all the environments that we've encountered so far in Star Wars. Luke complains constantly that if there's a bright spot in the universe, this is the point that's farthest from it. I would argue that that is a 
rich and non-trivial piece of reframing, and it's certainly something that we'll be keeping an eye on as we move forward. We're going to look more closely at the structure during the live tweet for The Phantom Menace, which will happen at 9 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday night. That's November the 3rd. I hope you can make it. If you can't, then you can track the Twitter hashtag Starwonks. So that leaves us with one final vital question. Whose story is The Phantom Menace? Who is our protagonist? Who is our antagonist? What is the conflict that gives our story shape and gives our story structure? That is a difficult question to answer because that is really the problem with the movie. It's undisciplined. Anakin isn't our protagonist. The core narrative conflict has nothing to do with him. His goal doesn't speak to it. His contribution in the final act is peripheral and accidental. But that doesn't stop us from taking a full 10 minutes to watch the pod race sequence. It isn't Qui-Gon's story because he's reactive throughout and ultimately fails in achieving his goal. It may be Queen Amidala's story. Her battle to keep her home safe tracks nicely with the core narrative conflict of the film, and it works, though it's somewhat hampered by the way in which she's sidelined for the second act. That is also true, of course, of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Ultimately, though, we have to come to the conclusion that The Phantom Menace is Obi-Wan's story. His goals to serve his master, to become a Jedi Knight in the abstract, to save the people of Naboo in the specific, are met. He is successful. He arcs and he changes. He grows more mature. He picks up his master's obligation after his death, even going so far as to oppose the council. There are large parts of the movie, unfortunately, that have nothing to do with Obi-Wan, but as I noted, that's true of all the characters. His, at least, is the most consistent presence. The presence that gives shape to the narrative and that leads us from our first scene to the last. And when you disentangle his thread from the other threads of the film, when you don't pay attention to the pod race or get distracted by the events on Coruscant to which Obi-Wan is only peripherally connected, when you distill his story, it resembles, in the largest movements, the story of the Phantom Menace as a whole. He's there from the beginning, he's there to the end, and it works rather beautifully. The wide-eyed Padawan learner who achieves his goals, though the price is high. And of course, it does what this movie was always going to do, which is not simply tell a story unto itself, but to cue us up for the remains of the prequel trilogy. We'll talk more about that next week. So where does this leave us in our understanding of The Phantom Menace? Well, watching it this time, I was struck anew by the revelation that this movie, despite the common consensus, is not a disaster. It is unfocused. It is weighed down by Anakin, by Jar Jar, by some forceful and profound missteps. But for all of that, it has a reasonable shape to it. The pacing is shot because of the gravitational influence of Anakin, of the pod race, I think, in particular. The pod race, divorced from its context, can be seen as a thrilling and exhilarating adventure sequence, but it's not thematically connected. It is, in the function of the major plot, irrelevant. But if one were able to strip this movie down, if you were able to re-edit it, perhaps as Topher Grace famously did alongside the other two prequel movies into one coherent film, then I think you would be left with something surprisingly 
provocative, something surprisingly thoughtful, something that is so much more than it seems on the surface to be. I should also note, of course, too, the spectacular music throughout this entire film. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that as the Darth Maul fight sequence is the best fight sequence in all of Star Wars, so Duel of the Fates is the greatest individual piece of composed music used in the entire saga. I think it's astonishing. It is also followed by the Gungan Parade music, which is unequivocally the worst piece of music in the entire saga. So if we have learned anything at all, it is perhaps that John Williams giveth and John Williams taketh away. So not an uncomplicated movie, but also not an uninteresting movie. There is a great deal of depth here for those who care to search for it. That doesn't mean that I would consider it a success. I certainly wouldn't count it as my favorite movie, but in all honesty, if I find myself in a frame of mind where I can ignore the parts of this movie that are problematic, the parts where the pacing loses all momentum, the parts that just anger and infuriate me, if I can find myself in a peaceful, zen, tranquil place where I can ignore those things, I like The Phantom Menace. There are even days when I will choose to watch The Phantom Menace rather than watch Return of the Jedi. That, I know, not a common thought, but there it is nonetheless. It is a film bedeviled by these great weights of obligation, of textual obligation, but it is lighter and more sophisticated, more thoughtful, more fragile, and more delicate behind that. And that's not nothing. As I said, we'll live-tweet The Phantom Menace on Tuesday evening. I urge you, if you can find the time at 9pm Eastern on Tuesday, to hang out on Twitter and to watch the movie along with us. That's always an edifying and entertaining experience. The next lecture for Attack of the Clones will go up on Friday, November the 6th. We'll do a lecture for Attack of the Clones, then we'll do a lecture for Revenge of the Sith, and then we will have a follow-up live discussion in which we'll talk about the prequel trilogy as a whole, of course, and also talk about the entire saga, as well as looking ahead to The Force Awakens. It is going to be a really interesting discussion, and I urge you, if you don't already spend time over on the StoryWonk forum, I urge you to drop by, because this lecture really serves as a jumping-off point for some remarkably in-depth conversations that take place over there. So go check that out, forum.storywonk.com. There you will find the threads for each of the Story and Star Wars lectures and a great deal else besides. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I will see some of you, hopefully most of you, on Tuesday night. And I'll see the rest of you next Friday. Until then, may the Force be with you. <laughs>